Turn with me again this, this morning to the book of Lamentations. Looking ahead uh, after next week, and in a couple weeks, we'll begin a series in the book of Acts. Uh, if you want to be uh, thinking ahead, reading ahead. But we'll uh, begin the final chapter of this book this morning. Lamentations. You'll remember, just before we read, uh, Lamentations is a response to the siege and the invasion of Jerusalem and all of the destruction uh, that ensued, uh, horrible suffering, uh, many people carried off to Babylon. Lamentations is five uh, complete and distinct poems. The, the chapters here just, uh, correspond to that, highly organized poems. Uh, all of them have uh, 22 verses, um, and uh, four, the first four chapters of Lamentations are acrostics. They have 22 verses because... There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and acrostic is where each, each verse begins with a corresponding letter uh, in the alphabet. Uh, chapter 5 is unique among these poems um, in that it, it still has, it's not unique and it still has 22 verses uh, corresponding to the alphabet, but it's not an acrostic. Um, and it's also shorter. There's only, in the Hebrew, there's only one line uh, for each verse. Uh, and so it's, it's quite a bit shorter than, than the other poems, uh, if, if you look back um, through Lamentations. Uh, it's not been an easy book, uh, an easy subject matter to cover these, through, these few months as we have, but I, I want to briefly revisit with you the necessity and the goodness of God's gift of this book to us as believers. Uh, remind us of the fact that you and I need lament uh, we live in a broken and disappointing and difficult and painful world in many ways, with many things that we do and that we must, as believers, lament. Uh, we must mourn, lament, cry, grieve things. Uh, just yesterday, I, I took Owen to uh, his soccer game, uh, South Metro Denver, and, and I took a walk around the park while his team was warming up. I'd, I'd never been to this place, and I came across a large, beautiful memorial, and it was unlabeled, but after reading several tributes, evidently to kids who had, had died tragically, I, I, and checking Google Maps on my phone, realized we, we were right next to Columbine High School, and this was a, the, the memorial that, that memorializes that. Uh, that infamous horror 24 years ago uh, in 1999. And it was a sobering, gut-wrenching thing to, to read through these, these memorials. There were uh, quotes of, of students who survived etched in the stones there uh, like this. Uh, the hardest part for me to understand was kids killing kids. Or a kid my age isn't supposed to go to that many funerals. Uh, we deeply need, even in worship, maybe we should say especially in worship, uh, to be able to cry out to God with our hurts and our sorrows and our grieving. And God gives us example of that uh, in his word as being a significant and an important part of, of coming to him, even together in, in worship. God gives us, especially in the Psalms, words to use, words that we would probably scarcely dare to write ourselves but words by which we can uh, complain and, and cry out and mourn and confess our sin and plead with him. 
God's word shows that this is a good and necessary part of his people worshiping together, even as we also give much praise. And that remains a, a need for every one of us. I have burdens and, and struggles and fears on my heart this week that I need to, to bring to the Lord together with you uh, this morning. Uh, some of you are probably in a, in a good place, so to speak, you know, rejoicing in the Lord this morning, excited for life, eager to, to praise Doubtless, some of you are hurting, grieving in various ways as you came to worship the God of all comfort this morning. I don't commonly or easily give an example like the following, but I think it's a needed contrast to God's good and gracious design in in this provision for us. Uh, A couple of times not too long ago, I heard a pastor of a large church uh, get up and start the worship service as seems is his custom like this. How are you all doing this morning? How are you feeling? We're pumped up to be here. Now, being excited for the worship of God is a wonderful thing, of course. But I couldn't help but think how some people in that congregation of thousands might have responded in their hearts those mornings. The mother grieving the loss of a child. How are you all doing this morning? How are you feeling? You feeling good? Why was she expected to be in a happy, clappy mood, to be in God's presence as a condition of of worshiping God? The father who just lost his job and was terrified about how to provide for his children, how's he feeling? The person deeply struggling with their own faults and grieving their sin. How about the boy suffering abuse at home or the girl who struggled to get out of bed that morning because of depression? Why were they not given opportunity to grieve as well as to praise the Lord? Why were they not greeted by the healing grace of God, but rather prompted as if they were at a pop concert? Again, my purpose is not to put anyone down or build anyone up, but to encourage us as the church, each one of us, to receive in a fallen and broken world the gift of lament as a means to honestly work through grief to praise and faith and trust. And, and hopefully that's what, something of what we've been learning and going through the book of Lamentations. This is what David does in Psalm 42 that we just sang uh, a few minutes ago. David describes crying all night. In this song, he, he writes for God's people to use in worship. He describes pouring out his soul to God who seems distant. Lord, why have you forgotten me, he asks. But then through that process, he reminds himself, as we sang, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. And then the famous resolution at the end of that song. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And that's the gracious and honest uh, pattern that God has given us, not, not an obligation to come with smiles to him every day and all the time, and even in worship, uh, no matter what, but to come even mourning and questioning and fearing and grieving and bring that to him and be reminded of who he is and his promises, and then be restored to praise, to great praise as well. So let's continue to learn the lessons of this, this grieving book these last uh, couple of weeks here and, and be carried again to its pinnacle. Remember, Lamentations is not linear through the end. Through, we don't find the happy uh, 
conclusion of the gospel in chapter 5. We already got to that in chapter 3. It's, it's shaped like this. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So let's, let's hopefully be carried to that as we study this last chapter as well. We're going to focus uh, a little more on, on verse 7 this morning, uh, especially uh, it'll be somewhat topical around that, that verse. But uh, hear God's holy infallible word as I read uh, the first nine verses here. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. In this book, we've heard the several different voices. We've heard the narrator, probably Jeremiah, speaking. We've heard the voice of the man, this, this singular, first-person singular voice, particularly in chapter 3, as, as the voice of Christ that points us to Christ. And we've heard the people, the, the we voice here and there throughout the book. But now in chapter 5, it's, it's a prayer uh, only of the people. Chapter 5 is, is all first person plural, we, us. The people have, have shown up, again, in, in bits and pieces throughout the book. In the other poems, they've, they've confessed uh, sin and, and prayed to God here and there in bits and pieces. They have been encouraged by the voice of Christ in chapter 2 to pour out your hearts like water before the Lord. Uh, chapter 3, they resolve to, to lift hearts and hands to God. But now in chapter 5, finally, we have a, a full prayer, a full poem from the people responding to God. And, and a full-throated confession of sin, as we'll see, especially next week. Uh, and confession of dependence on him. This week, I want you to see two things that they are doing uh, in this first half of their prayer. So looking at number one on your outline there, and look with me at verse two first, where they pray, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. And then verse five as well, our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. And I want to draw your attention particularly to the, the descriptions there of, of a lost inheritance and, and, and being like orphans and widows and, and having no rest. These are really significant things for, for Israel as the people of God uh, to mention. All of these are important concepts relative to their relationship to God and his promises and his gifts. Their inheritance the land was, was a gift of God's grace, their inheritance for them. Uh, now it's lost. Uh, their relationship to God is frequently described in the Old Testament in, in the intimate and permanent terms of family. They are his children. Or he is their husband. And now they're like orphans or widows. Uh, and then the idea of rest. 
The peace and security and comfort that God gives is repeatedly described as, as God's rest, God's gift of rest to his people. And now they said they have no rest, no inheritance, no rest, and they're like orphans on the street. Now, all of those things are, are things that the people of Jerusalem, of Judah, squandered themselves, right? They, they took their inheritance for a granted. They did what they want with it instead of uh, honoring God. They functionally made themselves orphans by neglecting uh, their, their heavenly father. Uh, and they neglected the means that God gave them for, for receiving his rest, for cultivating the rest and peace, uh, the spiritual rest that God gives. And so they're acknowledging, again, I think that God has brought on this judgment. He's, he's distant in a sense. He's letting them feel uh, life without rest, life as a spiritual orphan. But what I want you to think about and, and see, particularly here, is that they are also, I think, in using these descriptions, uh, calling God to remember His covenant promises. They're, they're asking, and by implication, they're calling on Him. They're saying these, these things are not as they're supposed to be. We are not, Lord, supposed to be orphans. We are your children. You adopted us and promised. Uh, Lord, you, you've promised this inheritance is permanent it's it's based on on your grace so i think the implicit prayer and this is consistent with uh, the rest of the old testament is lord return to what you've promised keep keep your end of your covenant now that may sound like a presumptuous demand if in fact that's what they're praying um may sound like a selfish demand one that that israel's not in a position to make right now you know, if you break your mom's favorite vase uh, because you're playing football in the house, which you're also not allowed to do, and she confronts you to discipline you, and you say, well, come on, mom, you're, you're my mom. You love me no matter what. You know, let it go. That wouldn't be appropriate, right? I don't think that's the attitude of this prayer. It's, it is pleading for God's grace, for their need for his grace, to, to be returned to some sense of, of, of family with him or, or inheritance or rest. His promises are based on grace. They're not based on entitlement. Lord, this is what we deserve. They're based on undeserved grace. Jerusalem has suffered this chastisement. Now they're repenting and, and they need his mercy. The, the first verse is actually even, even clearer in this theme, this kind of prayer. When they begin, remember, O Lord, and look and see our reproach. Uh, remember is a frequent prayer. Uh, in the Bible, um, calling God to, to faithfulness to his own covenant. Lord, remember who you are. Remember what you've promised. Um, not as if God could possibly forget, but as a way of, of praying God's promises. Look as well, uh, as they say in, in verse 1 there. Look was a prayer that the man of Lamentations, the, the, this Christ figure, had prayed repeatedly earlier in earlier poems. And they seem maybe to have learned that from him. Um, look is a prayer in the Old Testament consistently that is a, a precursor to God renewing his grace. When God looks, when he remembers, he shows grace. Uh, he returns his favor. And so this is just an example of an appropriate part of, of repentance, of, of grieving for Christians. Uh, not in a complaining way, not uh, in an entitled way or accusing God of being unfair, but God teaches in his word that, that we can pray his promises, that we, he receives prayers to him even 
as bold as it sounds, calling him to be faithful to his covenant, to his love and grace, as we, as we know he will be. Uh, again, it's not entitlement. It's, it's, it comes out of assurance that God will be faithful, uh, expressing dependence and need for his grace. Even Jesus, even Jesus prayed, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Was Jesus accusingly complaining against the Father? Or, or acting in a, a sinfully entitled way? Of course not. He was, he was expressing grief. He was expressing what his, his horrible circumstances felt like in that moment. But he was, he was bringing this to the Father. He, he knew that the Father would be faithful to deliver him. And that this, this sense of separation he had could, could not and was not natural and, and could not be, be ultimate. He knew there was answers to that question, why have you forsaken me? So here's another part of working through grief, praying and pleading God's promises to him, knowing that he will be faithful. Another thing we observe and learn from uh, in this prayer, secondly on your outline, we see grieving sinners acknowledging the consequences of generational sin. That's kind of a long title. Let's think about that. Look at verse 6, verses 6 and 7. Where they confess this, we have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. Pause there for a minute. A a problem over and over again for Israel was going to Egypt and Assyria, particularly for things that they ought to have been going to God for, um, including their gods and their idols when they felt like their God wasn't working out exactly like they wanted or something, or they wanted something more. Here, here's a, a great um, example of this from Isaiah 30, where God confronts the people for going to Egypt and Assyria. God says this, uh, and then there's some sarcasm in here. Ah, stubborn children who carry out a plan, says the Lord, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. My children who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Very close to descriptions of how God's people were supposed to take shelter in in the shadow of his wings. And so I think verse 6 is in fact an example of what I read from verse 7, that the reference to our fathers sinning well, this, this is an example, particularly one of the key ways that they have sinned for generation after generation, submitting to Egypt and Assyria, going to Egypt and Assyria for their gods, for what they could give rather than going to the Lord, following the Lord's plan. And the people here seem to be saying, we didn't start this pattern. This, this is what our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers have been doing. But then comes the part we need to wrestle with here in verse 7. Our fathers have sinned. It is we who have borne their iniquities. They're the one, they've sinned. They're the ones that started this going to Egypt and neglecting you, Lord. We are bearing the consequences for what they did. Now, I said earlier, the people in this poem are, are now giving full-throated repentance, I think. Uh, but are they here shifting blame? Are they saying, this isn't really our problem. This is just what we inherited. I think the short answer is no, it's, it's not blame shifting. I think that's clear from, from this whole book, even from this very prayer. Next week we'll read from verse 16, 
where they say very clearly, woe to us, for we have sinned. There's no profession that they are not guilty. Um, And in in verse 6 that we've just read here, we have submitted to Egypt. They're included. They're included in in, um, the the sins. They, They continued the sins of their fathers and their ancestors. And so I think verse 7, the second half of 7, is simply lamenting of the fact that they're, they're not only built it, bearing their own guilt for what they have done, the way they have lived, but they're also suffering consequences of sin and guilt that have built up over centuries. And, and now the, the, full, um, the, the fullness of God's judgment has poured out for those things. Uh, here's how, how Williams describes this this statement in verse 7. It's an acknowledgement that sin can have a historical depth that aggravates its guilt and consequences. Their fathers did not live long enough to see the judgment they helped create, and so it fell to the children who walked in the same sins to finally bear that burden. Well, we might still wonder whether that's fully fair or how that works, but, but first, a related question that we should ask and be clear. Does God hold future generations guilty for the sins of their parents? Uh, does, does, does guilt carry over in that sense for sins of grandparents or great-grandparents? It's related to what some Christians, a, a small minority, but some Christians teach about generational curses or generational hexes that pass down through families. The answer to that, that question is unequivocally no. God does not hold anyone guilty for the, the sins of, of other family members or other generations. Uh, Ezekiel 18 is a really important study in that question. Uh, later, these, these same people, some of these same people in captivity in Babylon, so they would be carried off to Babylon and, and be there for 70 years, and Ezekiel interacts with them there. Uh, some of these same people would turn this into an excuse. They, they seem to, uh, toward Ezekiel, have forgotten their own guilt and culpability, and they start saying uh, what, what maybe this sounds like here. They start saying, this isn't our fault at all. Our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers, uh, they did all these horrible things, and, and we are suffering for it innocently. And so the, the Ezekiel 18, all of Ezekiel 18 is basically there to refute that notion and make the, make the point that God only and ever strictly holds each person accountable for his or her actions, for, for his or her belief, uh, or lack of belief. Uh, no, one is, no generation is ever judged for the sins of another generation. Uh, I, w- I would give one, one um, qualification just to be clear here. It is quite possible for children to bear the consequences of, of foolish and evil decisions of their parents and not, not be culpable in it. Uh, that, that is quite possible uh, as well. But here, it's, it, in Ezekiel's day, it was Israel complaining that, that they were innocent in this, and, and they weren't. Uh, sometimes Exodus 20, verse 5, this part of the second commandment is misunderstood. The, the reason attached to the second commandment, where it says, uh, for, the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. If you stop reading right there, this sounds like, well, maybe God does punish children for the sins of fathers. But the rest of that sentence is, the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The point is, those, those generations that continue in 
and, and perhaps even intensify uh, the, the sins of the fathers. Oh, back to Lamentations and this idea, this reality of generational sins, even generational guilt and consequences that, that can pile up in this sense. It's, it's a sobering reality in our fallen world. It's something that all of us experience, in, at least in some degree, even if not in the same way that, that Israel did, uh, or in the worst possible way. It's something Jesus warned the Pharisees about. This concept in Matthew 23, Jesus said to the Pharisees, fill up then the measure of your fathers. They're, they're doing something the same as their fathers, and they're, they're, they're filling up the anger of God is what he means. He says, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. In history, he means. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, all these things, he described the sins of generations past, all these things will come upon this generation. And Jesus was not telling the Pharisees they were being charged with the sins of you know, hundreds of years ago. He was accusing them of rather willingly continuing in those same things, even intensifying them. They, they after all, would kill the very Son of God. And he warns them in, in, with the, the illustration of like a giant cup um, that they are, they are filling up. It's almost to the brim, and the Pharisees in their generation would fill it to the top. It was going to spill over. And Jesus may have in mind that the other great destruction of Jerusalem in, in the year 70 there, which was a, a spilling over of consequences that built up. Uh, I'm sure some of you have heard the fable of the Pied Piper, the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Uh, if you haven't, Hamlin, in the fa- as the fable goes, this medieval fable, uh, Hamlin had a rat problem, a rat infestation. And so the, the mayor hired the piper with his magic pipe, musical pipe, uh, who promised he could get rid of the rats, and he, he promised, the mayor promised him a large sum of money if he could do that. And so the piper came and played his magical tunes, and all the rats followed him out of the city and into the river, and, and there, the city was saved. Um, and then the mayor refused to pay the piper, and he wouldn't pay him, and he wouldn't pay him. And so the piper came back and played his pipe again, and, and what? He led all the children out of the city, tragically, right? Um, and it's from that, that fable we get the phrase, pay the piper. You're going to, and, and it's usually applied to, you know, you're going to have to deal eventually with the consequences of foolish decisions. The piper will have to be paid, uh, as we say. Well, think about how the consequences of, of evil or foolish decisions can be often kicked down the road um, by those who don't think they're going to have to deal with the consequences. But at some point, as we say, the piper will have to be paid. Think of our, our national debt, right? Recklessly added to every year. Some, you know, sometime in some great way, the piper will have to be paid, uh, presumably, in the future. Surely the sin of abortion, in Jesus' terms, is filling up the measure of guilt. Uh, many horrible consequences along the way, but but perhaps filling up the measure of guilt over time. And, and generations can play a sort of Russian roulette with, with their, their sins and their foolishness, assuming that they will not have to face the greatest consequences, even natural consequences. But the piper will have to be paid in that sense. Jerusalem in, in 586, the book of Lamentations, uh, drank that filled up cup. Uh, and again, in 
in the year 70, as, as Jesus warned, uh, in a sense. Uh, again, God doesn't hold one generation guilty for the sins of another. Uh, but there is uh, generational sin, e- evil and guilt, harmful patterns that are, that are passed down that, that can build up, in a sense. Um, some of you may know the name uh, J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance is a U.S. senator now, a very young U.S. senator, but he, uh, he came to fame seven or eight years ago for a book uh, called Hillbilly Elegy, which was his, uh, a memoir of his. Um, and the book describes the, really the destructive generational patterns and assumptions uh, in, in his upbringing, poor white industrial Appalachia with roots in, in Kentucky hillbilly culture and various things, um, assumptions about family relationships and poverty and alcohol use that were just ingrained and generational uh, and how hard uh, it was to break out of that. Of course, equally destructive patterns are adopted at the other end of the economic spectrum too. Uh, but it, it's, it, it's a book that powerfully describes that. Um, as a sobering reality, again, for, for all of us, at least in, in some degree, in some ways, even if it's not all-out rebellion against God in our families or, or more obvious and outwardly destructive patterns, uh, we who are parents, uh, we, we not only potentially carry on from our parents and our grandparents unwise or unbiblical patterns or sins, but we potentially pass on our weaknesses and our sins to our children. Whatever idols you tend to, and we all do, uh, tend to mix with faith in Christ, this, th- these can be passed on to children. Right? Wealth, entertainment, success, or uh, fathers who work too much outside the home and don't serve wife and children in the home. It's a generational pattern famously captured in the, the Cats in the Cradle song. Uh, patterns of neglecting the church or the means of grace or patterns of, of harshness or impatience or sexual sin. We, we could go on and on. And so this reality calls for self-reflection. What, what patterns have you received that you need to bring to the Lord? What patterns are you perhaps passing on? Something to reflect on. Now that's the reality, that's the a warning of, of this theme in the scriptures that comes out in, in Lamentations 5 here. But I want to turn to the fact that the encouragement and the hope around this theme in the scriptures is greater than the danger and the warning. And that's the, the third point on your outline. Uh, and, and we don't really find that uh, explicitly here in Lamentations 5. But considering this theme, uh, here, for example, how God is described again in the second commandment. Uh, We read the first part earlier. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. A sobering warning. But it goes on. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, God loves to bless through generational faithfulness. Uh, to a thousand generations. I think the point there and elsewhere in, in the scriptures is it's, it's incomparable with, with his anger, with his, his warnings of judgment, his desire to show grace. God blesses generationally the faithfulness of his people. That, that's the first encouragement I want you to take away. Secondly, is that God can break the power of generational sin or, or potential generational failures in anyone at any point. Uh, if, if you struggle with sinful patterns... 
in yourself or in your family. Bring them to the Lord. God sets free from sin. This is what he loves to do for his people. Romans 6, you have been set free from the power of sin is, is the theme there. Our first Peter 2.24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. God breaks the power of sin. Maybe some of you have suffered the consequences of your parents' sin. Uh, as I mentioned briefly earlier, in, in, in a way, in the sense in which you are not complicit at all. It, it's just a, 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 an unjust uh, way that you bore the foolishness, uh, generational foolishness and decisions. Well, God breaks the power of that sin and that hurt. Uh, God gives the power to forgive and to hope and to change and to heal. Uh, turn to the God of all comfort who himself died unjustly in the person of Jesus for your sins. Uh, again, some Christian circles teach about generational curses, generational hexes that are passed down from generation to generation. The idea is usually you, they, they can't be undone unless you, you know, know the right person who knows enough about this. So you do the right ritual or you go back and confess all the sins from previous generations. There's no such thing biblically. It's, it's completely made up. There, there is, again, a power, in a sense, to, to ingrained and generational sin, but not a power that can't be broken instantly and simply by Jesus, by, by someone who places their faith uh, in repentance in him. Uh, sin is forgiven once for all. Uh, there's no generational hexes. Thirdly, a third encouragement. A third encouragement, particularly maybe for, for parents who, who might be concerned in thinking about these things, it is that you, you depend ultimately on God to bless your generations. Another way to put that is it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. God calls you, yes, to responsibility, to be, to be warned about patterns of sin. He calls you to faithfulness, and he, he uses that and can bless that in your family that's a wonderful thing. But if, if your children or your grandchildren walk with the Lord in faithfulness at all, it will not ultimately be because you did well enough uh, for that outcome, but because God was gracious to them. He gave them hearts of flesh. And if, if they don't or they spend time in rebellion or, or whatever it is, that ultimately also is not uh, up to you. They are responsible ultimately for their own decisions as each of us is, and God's will will be to his ultimate glory uh, in your family. And so the takeaway here it, it, relative to this is, is not just be better or just try harder, um, but ultimately to ask God to have mercy, to give you and your family <clears throat> greater faithfulness and love and repentance and fruitfulness. It doesn't ultimately depend on you. Uh, we need to pray for that blessing uh, to a thousand generations in our families. And then finally, here, here's the most blessed fact and lesson relative to this theme in the scriptures. Uh, again, God does not punish or hold guilty one person for the sin of another person, with one exception. Right? All of us have inherited the guilt of our first father, Adam. We're all born into rebelling against God, doing things our own way uh, in pride and selfishness. But God held Jesus guilty in your place though he was without sin. 
As Isaiah said, God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the one blessed exception. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul puts it. If you are in Christ, the power of sin is broken in you because of Jesus, because he willingly stood in your place. It's not something that you can do or you can overcome. It's something that Jesus has overcome. So for those who are in Christ, when you fall into patterns of, of sin or you lament or worry about those patterns in your family, God will remember his covenant. For those who seek him, he will give you rest and hope and joy and faith. Your patterns of sin do not negate or take out of your reach his promises uh, of faithfulness. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, again for this your word uh, in this uh, difficult book of mourning and grieving uh, over loss and sin and hardship. I uh, pray that we would, you would continue to teach us from this how to grieve, how to come to you in grieving, uh, how to uh, work repentance into our grieving uh, and trust in your faithfulness. Um, we pray that you would give us careful reflection on these things uh, now and throughout this week uh, and apply them to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.